Good evening, fam. My name is Anya and I am an alcoholic. Um, and I want to thank Carrie and Pej for having me speak tonight. It's been kind of a week and a lot of speaking and a lot of stuff going on in life. And I've learned to realize in sobriety that when it gets packed up with AA, there's definitely a reason that God is forcing me, you know, not so gently to really be a part of you. Um, my sobriety date is February 5th, 2010. So I'm coming close to 11 years. And, um, you know, I got to tell you that uh, for all of the newcomers, you know, I heard a speaker say this once and never have I found it wrong more true is that the courage is where you are sitting. Because once you've worked the steps thoroughly and honestly with a sponsor and gotten really authentic with yourself, being at seven days, six days where you are, that's where the courage at. And that's why you are the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous. So welcome home. Um, you know, Natalie talked about, you know, not really knowing why. And, you know, she doesn't give herself enough credit. The truth is, is that her diligence and her willingness to, um, you know, open up and hear some hard truths about herself is why she gets to stay here and have powerful sobriety. And that is also the reason that I get to this time as well. Um, so a little bit about my story. I am the first American born from a family of political refugees from communist Russia. Um, so already I'm different. Uh, you know, I, I am the kid that no one was allowed to, I didn't know this at the, at the time, but my sister pointed out to me a couple of years ago, I'm that kid that um, kids never came to our house to play. Like they weren't allowed to, I was allowed to go to other kids' houses, but they never came over our house. My father was a very violent man. My mother is still an active alcoholic. Um, and that was just my normal. Um, I grew up in this dichotomy of being a Russian kid in America and I was learning the languages simultaneously, you know, so at school I was this weird Russian kid with this really strange name and at home I was this American wild child that loved to eat dirt and, you know, jump into, you know, piles of trees and, you know, just run amok, never looked both ways before crossing the street, just ran. Um, you know, from the gate, I was, I was trouble. As a matter of fact, the funny story is I was born on a, in a, in a Northeastern suburb, right on the New York border in Northern New Jersey, Teaneck, New Jersey, where to this day, everything shuts down at 7 PM. And, um, on the day that I was born, it was already spring. Uh, but the day that I was born, this anomalous snowstorm blew into town and it was like this crazy, incredible snowstorm. And they knew that someone just came into this world with a whole lot of shit along with them and they weren't wrong. Um, so I was born really sick. They didn't know. Um, at a few months old, I start, my mom would watch me sleep and she would hear me hold my breath. And I started running a high fever and essentially went septic and they didn't have the technology that they have today. And after a slew of doctors, they found out that my kidney was um, poisoning me. I had a deformed kidney that was taking all of the toxins it was supposed to filter and shoot it back into my body. And so I went into an immediate morphine induced coma to remove that kidney. And, you know, therein became this very sick attachment that my mom had to her wild child. Um, you know, she would sleep on the hospital floor because they didn't have waiting rooms or things for, you know, places for parents to sleep until I'd came up, come out of that coma. 
and um, <clears throat> you know, growing up uh, with a Russian family a few years after my parents came over here, um, you know, and and again they left in a time where they were stripped of their citizenship. They fought the KGB to get here. Like my mom's story is ridiculous, and my grandmother and grandfather were Holocaust survivors you know, and, um, and so I just come from this lineage of lunatics that fight, you know, and, and we just fight for our lives. And, um, and so, you know, the rest of the family on my mother's side of the family started coming over and I have a cousin who's 10 years older than I am. And he started to do very bad things to me, just like Natalie had discussed. And just like a lot of women and men in here, I experienced things as a five-year-old girl that no child should ever have to go through. And I remember, you know, telling my parents, I re vividly remember being five, sitting by the swinging door, waiting to hear my father hit him and my mother scream because that's what they do. And uh, I didn't hear a sound. And from that moment forward, I had decided that my family would never protect me. And so, you know, for years afterwards, you know, he didn't get in trouble and I, you know, my mom put me in therapy right away and they had me build dinosaurs out of popsicle sticks. And she said I would be fine and I would never remember a thing. And for a long time I didn't. And so, you know, there would be family functions and he would be there and I would jump up in his arms and he would fondle me underneath my skirt and I never made a sound about it because something in my little head said they didn't do anything when it hurt. So they're definitely not gonna do anything now. So there must be something wrong with the way I feel about it. Maybe what he's doing isn't wrong at all. And so that's what a, a little child will go to. And that's what I thought. And um, so around the story about my alcoholism, when I look back and when I hear stories of, that my family tell me is that, you know, on Saturdays, my grandmother wanted to go to Shabbat services and the kids play during the service. And then the whole, you know, service goes to the, another room and breaks bread and has, you know, food with each other. And they would find me underneath the table where all the Manischewitz wine cups once were, they were now empty and I'm passed out under the table. So I suffer from this thing called, I want more. It tastes good. It feels good. I'm four years old. I'm not trying to get drunk, but it was very tasty. So I drank all of it. And so as a four years old, I'm getting wasted on Manischewitz every Saturday, you know, just because it's tasty. And, and that is the story of my life. I became this garbage can, you know, and I identify as an alcoholic, but that was not an easy um, thing to come to. I was very busy thinking I'm a junkie. I was very busy thinking I'm so much worse than you. Like Natalie said, I have this traumatic childhood. I'm addicted to black tar heroin. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm worse. And until I got into recovery and until I got into these AA meetings and could hear for once in my life, I didn't know the way that I drank was abnormal. I come from a Russian family. Drinking is cultural. You know, everyone that I partied with drank just like me. The, the, the word alcoholic was never brought up in our home. My grandpa peed his pants and would drive through, you know, he'd have all the kids in the back of the station wagon and he'd be driving through the lights. And it was because he was colorblind. You know, nobody ever said, you're an alcoholic, you need to stop drinking. Um, as a matter of fact, no one ever said that until I got sober and learned what alcoholism is. Um, so... 
either way, uh, at around eight years old, <clears throat> my father, you know, we needed to leave because the rest of the family came to New Jersey. So we took off to the West Coast. My dad got a job in, in LA. And so we moved to Venice. And that is where I had arrived. Um, I come from a time in Venice where it was not this bougie man bun, you know, uh, yo hot yoga place that it is now. It was a dangerous neighborhood where there were drive-bys weekly. Um, my mom was completely embarrassed because she said that she walked down the street and didn't see one piano in anyone's house, you know, and, uh, and so I lived this dichotomy from a young age, you know, education. I mean, like I was brutalized with education, third grade. I'm trying to learn my times tables at school and I have to come home to my algebra tutor, Yula, and know and start learning you know, algebraic formula. And if I didn't get it, I was, you know, you know, I was a stupid bitch. I was, you know, up until three in the morning crying because I couldn't finish both homeworks. Like it was terrible. I was a chess champion. I played all of the sports. I played classical piano. I was learning multiple languages. I was learning French, more Russian and, and Hebrew all at the same time. There was a lot of pressure to be a genius. And, uh, and all I wanted to do was just break out, you know? So, you know, my dad would leave and my mom would leave and I'd put on his size, you know, 30, 30, whatever pants. And I'd staple them to the bottom of my Pumas, you know, and I'd put on his biggest shirt and I'd go out into the neighborhood and find the boys and be like, what are we doing today? You know? And I remember at one point I cut all my hair off cause I was just such a tomboy. And, um, and so, um, at 11 years old, I had stolen my first cigarette. My mom and her friend were wasted in the kitchen. It was a Salem 100. And I stole that Salem and I went into the bathroom and I watched myself really romantically in the mirror smoking this cigarette. And I knew I was doing something wrong because I'd seen the commercials before and I know I'm supposed to cough and I wasn't. So I went and I watched them at the door and I saw that they inhaled and that's the link that I was missing. So I stole another Salem 100. I went in the bathroom, I inhaled and I got a head change for the first time and I liked it. So at 12 years old, I smoked my first joint. At 13 years old, I'm introduced to pills and I'm ODing on my living room floor. And that's the story of my, of my, of my alcoholism is that there was no invisible line. I hit the ground running. Everything that I had been searching for my whole life was to escape. And I found it in whatever it was that you had. So um, at the exact, in the exact same year, 1993 was very rough on everyone. Uh, I started having flashbacks of what my cousin had done to me and they were violent flashbacks, uh, which would have, I would have visceral reactions to the sound of a shattery screen on a TV. I'm losing my mind. I didn't know why all of this stuff, uh, in the same year, my I caught my father having an affair on my mother with a family friend in my bedroom where she was staying with us for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I had gotten arrested for my first time for grand theft auto, 93 was bad. So, you know, my family's splitting apart. My life is falling apart. I'm a daddy's girl and he disappears to go gallivant around and do what men that are having midlife crises do. And, um, and I'm losing my mind. And so my mom locked me into this facility that was for wayward kids. 
you know, and I'd find a way to sneak the stuff in. And I'm, you know, I remember at some point we, we found, you know, a way to get a fake ID. And, you know, back in the nineties, they didn't really care. So there was this one creepy guy, his name was Mike and he was, he ran the liquor store and he knew that we're like, you know, 13 year old kids. And he'd sell us the 64 ounces of old English where it came in this big jug with this tiny little couldn't get a finger in that finger hole, but it was just this big jug. And we would drink that thing down and we'd play drive by in the front yard and we'd black out and wake up with our knees all scraped. You know, every car that drove by, we'd go dive on the ground. Cause again, Venice was not a, not a cute place in the nineties. And, um, and we were just partying like Natalie said, you know, it was like, we were just doing what the kids in the neighborhood did. You know, and then my neighbor's dad loved to get a stone. Oh, he thought it was the greatest thing. He'd pick us up from the marina where we all would watch movies and hang out and, you know, and, 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 and do whatever we did. And he'd give us a joint, you know, and then we'd sit there and all night, you know, the laughing where no sound comes out and watch Beavis and Butthead and eat, you know, mayonnaise and, and strawberry jam sandwiches. Cause she was poor. So it was like, and we weren't allowed to touch the orange juice because her mom loves screwdrivers. So if we ever touched that Donald duck orange juice, we were all going to get beaten in the morning. Um, <clears throat> you know, and that was just how we were, you know, but the difference is, is that a lot of these people either, well, either started having babies really young, which is 98% of them. So by 15, half of everyone was pregnant. Um, but I just kept going. And, and so there came a point where, you know, the only time my mom knew where I was and felt safe was if she called 911, said I was suicidal and they'd put me on a 5150 and take me to UCLA. So for 72 hours, she could sleep at night, you know, and she's trying to deal with the emotions of the divorce. And I don't give a shit about that. I'm trying to deal with my emotions that my daddy left me, you know? And, um, and, all I'm doing is running amok. So um, I'm 16 years old. We go to New Jersey to visit my family. I steal a bunch of Valium from Dinah because she had loads of them. And I think I stole some of her jewelry too. And uh, she was what I called my fairy godmother. And, um, you know, they call 911 again. And when I'm let out of that 72 hour hold, they, we fly back to California and at LAX, my mom takes one look at me and she says, you can have what you have one of two choices. You come home and let me help you. And I will get you any help you need, or you get the hell out of my house. And so I moved out at 16 years old. Mochi, I'm sorry, but geez, you got poop on. Uh-oh, Bob, I don't know about the poop, but you're not on mute. <laughs> so, you know, um, so, you know, at, at 16 years old, I'm living on whoever's couch and, you know, whoever's house, you know, and I'm barely making it to school and I'm barely, you know, I'm going down to Tijuana with my much, much older male friends every two weeks. And we're picking up loads and loads of, uh, um, well, they're called somas, carisoprotol, and it's like the closest thing you can get. It's like a you know barbiturates or whatever, and uh, and you know we're all like shaking, swallowing our tongues. We're like, this is great. We got to go back in two weeks, pick up four thousand more, and they're gone, you know. And it was just this insane thing. Um, 
you know, and I'm barely making it to school. And at 17 years old, one more time on a fake ID, I think it's a great idea that I go to Sunset Boulevard and get myself a job at a strip club because why wouldn't you want to get paid for looking good? And I thought there would be no repercussions to that mentally. It's like, this is great. I'm living the life. Like I'm in Hollywood at the biggest club. I'm getting in all of the places, VIP, super underaged, even for, you know, the place that I was working. Um, but I was making loads of money. Um, I have no parental guidance. And in places like that, everyone's drinking and using. So it was like, I, I, it was amazing. I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And, uh, and of course that led into other parts of that industry. And, 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 you know, I'm, I was one of those kids. It's like, no regrets, man. This is going to be great. I'm going to be famous, <laughs> you know? And, um, and what wound up happening was at some point, you know, it was like, I got tired. I got tired of being a night owl. I got tired of, you know, doing all that. And so I, and I broke up with the then boyfriend. Cause I found out that he was, you know, taking the money. He didn't have a job. So he was taking the money that I was earning on my naked ass and going to other strip clubs with it. And I was so mad. So, uh, so I went home to mommy. I asked her, please let me in. I want to change my life around. So, you know, she peed in a cup for me and I got a job working for LA Unified School District. And I did that for 10 years. I got that job. I was working with kids on the severe end of the spectrum. And, uh, you know, I was one of those, what you would call functioning, at least I thought I was a functioning alcoholic, you know, uh, but it was like, you know, I always made sure that I worked really close to my home so that I could run home on my breaks and get loaded. And then there came the point where then I just went, ran to my car to get loaded. And then I started using the excuse that, you know, I needed to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes because I have one kidney and I'm getting loaded on an elementary school campus in the bathroom, in the staff room. And, uh, you know, the jig was up at one point. Um, there was a time where, you know, the principal, the recess had ended a long time ago and I had some of those sour straws and I was on a nod in the staff room and they told me that I needed to go drug test. And I am a very creative alcoholic. I told them, how dare you? I have psych issues and I fought my union. I told them no, which is supposed to be an automatic fail. I got my union involved. I got my psychiatrist at the time to say that I'm on, you know, which I, I was, I was on a slew of things. Uh, because, you know, as someone who is addicted to alcohol, heroin and crack cocaine, you definitely look like you're bipolar. And so I was medicated for bipolar disorder. <laughs> no wonder I'm manic and depressed. I got problems. Uh, and I had him convinced, too. And so, you know, I, I, I was able to actually win that. And uh, I got my job back and I started you know, going, I, I started working at a high school in the hood. I remember, and I would sign in and then I would leave. And then I would come back the next morning and sign out, sign in, leave, come back the next morning, sign out. And I knew that it was like, I'm so close to getting caught. So of course, what I naturally did was say that my grandma died. Let's be very clear. I killed my grandma at least seven times in my addiction. She didn't die until last year. She was almost 99 years old. So um, so, you know, my grandma died. I have all these problems. I need to take personal necessity and, and resign from my job. And, you know, once I resigned from the school district, it was a whole lot of getting into trouble time. And, um, so, uh, I was introduced to 
uh, heroin. And I remember, you know, and this is, this is the typical alcoholic thing is like, you know, I knew a girl who did it for a long time. She would always introduce, like, tell me, ask me if I wanted it. I'm like, no, you look gross. It's fine. I'm good. And then that one time, that one curiosity. And I remember I smoked it and I'm vomiting. I mean, I am projectile vomiting this shit out. And I, my first thought is this is how I want to die. And my second thought is next time I need to drink Slurpees before I do this so that at least when I vomit, it tastes better, you know? <laughs> so, you know, um, again, I'm just a mess. I'm drinking. I loved Jägermeister. You know, you never knew really, well, there were certain things you knew what you were going to get. Don't ever give me tequila because I'm going to want to fight the biggest guy in the bar. Would I was just insane. Vodka Vodka's funny with me. Sometimes it just wouldn't work. And I think as an alcoholic, the most infuriating thing is when you drink a bunch and you're not getting drunk. Um, so Jägermeister worked really well for me and I was a lot of fun and you never knew what was going to happen, but it wasn't, you know, I would, you know, Jägermeister was the alcohol that was like, I wake up and I say, where am I and who are you? <laughs> you know, and that started happening pretty regularly. And again, to me, that doesn't look like alcoholism. That just looks like me being in my, you know, or very, was I like 19, 20 at the time. And this is like normal life and I'm super cute and, you know, and I'm, and I'm just partying and I'm doing what the rest of us do. Um, so, you know, I talk about my other afflictions because it's really, really important. I think that like what my perception of AA and these fellowships were is that I thought it was about preferences. I thought that I had to go to the fellowship of the thing that I preferred. And if you ask me, you know, alcohol, methamphetamines are kind of the last things because they take, well, meth is just, I can't, it's just too damn much. But alcohol for me is it's like, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to get messy. It's going to get, you know, it takes too long, uh, you know, and all of this stuff. Um, but I didn't know that the way, again, that the way that I drank was um, alcoholically. So I tried other fellowships and, uh, you know, for some reason it just didn't, it just didn't click with me. Uh, you know, I felt like I wanted to get loaded outside of the meetings. And I think that it's very important that I state first that my relationship with rehab and detox and sober living started at 13 years old. By the time I got here, I was 29 and I had been to over four dozen rehabs, detoxes. So if this isn't your first rodeo, don't give up, man. You know, over four dozen times I was making the grand tour and there were actually recovery places at this point that were 86ing me uh, because I'm causing too much trouble at them, a lot of trouble and taking everyone out with me. So, you know, um, you know, I go back to Claire Fountain. I get, I get to this place on February 4th of 2010 and, uh, and they tell me don't come loaded and I come wasted. And, you know, I'm not doing anything different this time. As a matter of fact, I'm coming in there kicking and fucking screaming, but now I'm looking at a heavy, uh, prison sentence. So I skipped over this story. There came a point in 2009, I was starving. I was homeless. You know, I, I no longer was a functioning alcoholic. 
Uh, I'm living a quarter mile away from my, from my mom's house, living behind a dumpster. I'm the girl with no shoes on, panhandling for your change, doing what I've got to do in order to get what I need. Uh, you know, I I've always thought that buildings were on fire or had smoke remnants from the fire. I'm talking to myself. I'm probably 90 pounds at best. Um, you know, I'm just caught in this perpetual state of hell and, you know, believing that I am cursed and this is why other people get to die and I have to keep living. And so I go to a Vaughn supermarket I steal rice pudding and I steal Ben and Jerry's ice cream and homeless. I steal a DVD, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, because I decided somewhere in that little head of mine that somewhere, someday I'll be able to watch that DVD and I'll be able to laugh again because it had been very long since I'd been able to laugh. I'm leaving that store. I'm well-versed in how uh, loss prevention is supposed to act. And once you're out, they can only ask you to come back in. And if you don't, you just run and they're not allowed to touch you. And if the cops can catch up to you, it's a, it's a robbery charge. I walk out of that store. Someone grabs the purse of my stolen food and DVD, yanks me back. These three undercover loss prevention guys proceed to beat me within an inch of my life. And I'm not kidding you when I say beat me within an inch of my life. They locked, they knocked me unconscious twice. My shoes flew off. I was bleeding from everywhere. And when the cops come to arrest me, uh, you know, there's this police officer who is like asking me my story. I was actually just talking about this to Natalie because it's so rare where I talk about this and it's just such a beautiful example of how God works. So, um, so there's this, there's this cop, no cop has ever been nice to me. And this guy is asking me my story because his rookie that he's training is the exact same age as me. And he just kind of wants to know, like, how did I go down this path? You know? And when I get to the book, you know, when, when I'm getting into booking, they have to pull my sweaty hair out of my face and they see that I'm like scalped and I'm really messed up. I've got dry blood all the way down because I had really long hair. And they said to me, my God, we've got to take you to the emergency room. Why didn't you tell us that they beat you so badly? And I looked at them and I said, because I thought I deserved it. And this is the creature that I had become. You can beat me. You can rape me. You can hurt me. You can, sp I've been spit on. I've had everything happen. And at this point in my life, I believe that I had deserved it. So, you know, they take me to the ER, they're, you're, they're, uh, this cop still oddly asking me questions. I don't remember much, but I remember it was weird. And he had shown me kindness that I had never seen definitely in a Culver City cop or in a police officer in any realm of my life. Cause I was, you know, very familiar with the, with the system at that point. And I get to jail and I'm booked and I'm charged with attempted murder and robbery. And they're telling me I'm looking at 21 years and I'm saying, what? the fuck just happened? I'm this kid that can speak three languages. That was a chess champion that, that, you know, plays classical piano. And I'm looking at a 21 year sentence. How has this become my life? So I do the, if then prayer that a lot of us have done. Uh, if God, if you get me out of this one, I promise I'll try to be a good girl. 
And, you know, um, I, I, again, I didn't know what my rights were at the time. I didn't know that the case should have been dismissed, um, but they wind up slapping a, a joint suspended sentence on me. And they said, if I mess up one more time, that, that judge Schwartz, oh, he's a mean one. He said, if you come through to this courthouse in any other way, but front through those front doors, he literally, his words were, I'm throwing the book at you. And I was like, isn't that just what they say on the TV shows? I mean, I haven't watched TV in a while, but, you know, can they do that? So, um, you know, they they gave me this option. They said that you can stay in jail and a rehab will come pick you up or, I don't know, somebody's making a lot of noise out there, uh, or, you know, you can be released, you know, on time served. And I'm like, bye, you know, I'm going to wait for a rehab. And I call him right outside of the jail and I said, don't come empty handed. You know, he parked somewhere relatively close to the jail. I don't know where. And we pull over and it's it's my time to shine, guys. Like I'd been in that jail for a few months. It is time for me to get back to my lover. And um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm filling this juicy thing up and I'm, you know, I'm like ready to go. And the guys are telling me, Anya, you're too clean. You're going to die. Don't do that much. And I look at them and I said, fuck you fuck you. I've been locked up long enough. I'm doing what I want. And I do that thing and not much happens. So I'm like, see, fuck you both. So I pull in another one. And then I died for the first time in my life. And I'm going to tell you guys that I went somewhere and I will not call it heaven. I never will because it was an alternate state of reality. I was not sitting on a cloud. I was in a real place. And that place was love and it was safety. And it was everything that I had ever been looking for. But God damn it, wouldn't you know that those guys had two shots of Narcan in the trunk of the car and they brought me back to life. And I have never been more pissed off about anything. Why, why do I have to do this again? Why do I have to keep living this, literally this life sentence, you know? And so, you know, my, my only places at this point, it's like, you know, I called my babushka, my, my Jewish grandma and I'm like, grandma, I promise I'll do better. Can I come to New Jersey and live with you? And she says, Anushka, I love you. No, I don't want you to steal my pills because I, I stole her heart medication. She had a quadruple heart bypass and I knew they weren't going to get me a head change, but I'd steal them in. I'm going to take whatever the hell I can and a handful of it, even if it means her life. And I'm calling my mom and she's not answering her phone. Finally, she went to Al-Anon with my sister and I'm calling all of the friends and I'd burnt every bridge because I'm stealing the kids piggy bank at night, you know, and I'm disappearing with their stuff. And I had burnt every single bridge to the ground. And thank God I did so that I could be forced this time into the rooms. I had nowhere else to go. So I go to this one shithole rehab, you know, in the heart of LA, in the hood. And, you know, they're asking me what's different. And I'm just telling them to fuck off. I've got hot pink hair. I'm now maybe like, you know, a hundred pounds soaking wet. And I think I'm Billy Badass walking in there. You know, I'm going to find the tallest guy with the most cigarettes and I'm going to make this work. And um, I got myself kicked out of that treatment center in 28 days. And it was the longest time I had ever not used. Like, honestly, and I couldn't figure it out then, uh, but I know now that that was grace. But for the grace of God, there go I. And so I did get kicked out for my behavior issues. <laughs> I go to the next treatment. I go to Claire Foundation where I'm a repeat 
you know, read whatever they call it, retread. And they're like, yeah, Anya, you don't do well. You take people out with you, but we will find you a place because for some reason they loved my sorry, crazy ass. And they found me this place and it was also an all women's treatment facility. And I'm like, oh God, here we go, women. And then I thought, well, I can make that work too. I'll kiss the girls, you know. I, all I want is love and attention. All I want is distraction. All I want is, you know, something to take me and make me feel like I'm worth it or I'm special. Nothing that I have to focus on. What is this 12-step bullshit you guys keep trying to push on me, you know? And um Shortly into that treatment center, I find out that I have hepatitis C and I'm like, why me? Why do I have to blah, blah. And the counselor sits me down and she said, Anya, you shot dope with dirty needles. Are you serious right now? And I'm like, well, but still. And she said to me, because someday, and here I am, I'm like a month and I'm just a maniac. And she said, someday you're going to be able to be okay with that truth and you're going to help someone else that's new coming into this program know that they can find out that they've got some cooties too and stay sober through it. And I looked at her and I said, fuck that. I don't give a shit. You know, I was just mad. Uh, and, um, but I had to go to these damn meetings, you know, no one was taking me in anymore. And, you know, from finding that out, they said to go and get free treatment while I can. And they said, you know, you're on welfare, go do it now, go to Martin Luther King Hospital. So one of the girls from the treatment center is escorting me and we get off the green line and, you know, we're walking, we can see the hospital. So we're walking through this big parking lot and, uh, all of a sudden I stop in my tracks and I'm 117 days dry in treatment. And I look to my left and I look to my right and I am standing on the spot that I died in that day that I was let out of jail. And I am filled, filled with the presence of a loving and powerful God. It was undeniable. I got to have that white light experience, not working a program, not caring about this. And I knew, I knew in that moment that I had to give this thing a shot. The jig was up. The jig was up. I knew that God was love. And God loved me enough to let me have that experience because I was just going to do the same shit one more time. So I got back to that treatment center and I'm like filled with the jazz of the spirit. I'm like, oh my God, God's real. I felt it. Let me get a sponsor, you know, attraction rather than promotion. I found the lady that had the most time and the most diamonds on her hands. And I'm like, I'm attracted to that, you know? And I didn't know what quality versus quantity was. I thought that the way that you looked and the time that you had meant something. And I thanked her for how far she took me after my first two months. And I went on to sponsor number two. And her name was LaTanya and that little lady was on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous and she lit mine. And what I'm about to say, folks, is going to be quite crass. So prepare yourself if you haven't been prepared already. LaTanya was an incredible, incredible sponsor for me. And she didn't sugarcoat anything. And I remember one day, Natalie made me promise not to leave this part out. So if you get upset, you blame her in the end. Uh, so, so, you know, I remember I called her one day with all of my drama and all of my bullshit. And I said, you know, I'm like, I'm suffering and blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, did you get on your knees to pray to God? And I said, I don't get on my knees to pray to God. And she said, did you get on your knees to suck some dick for some rock? Then you can get on your knees to pray to God. And I was like, oh shit. And I got on my knees 
And I started to pray and I got right-sized and I got humbled. And that woman took me as far as she could. And then all of a sudden I decided I wanted to be a lady. It didn't work out so well, but I wanted to be a lady. So I, I found the ladiest lady sponsor I could, you know, and um, I got into this group, which was like, you know, the shining lights of Alcoholics Anonymous, like the dopest of all of the dope. And, you know, we're hardcore AA and we're by the book and we do the traditions and we're educating ourselves in this process. And, you know, when I got there and they're like, you don't look right, you don't sound right. You need to stop saying the word fuck so much, you know, and you need to do this and that and ask us permission and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, I'll do my best. And I was part of that home group for eight years and I'll forever be grateful for all of the education and structure that they provided me. But there came a point where I had to realize that this is about me being God's kid. This isn't about the dogma of Alcoholics Anonymous where they tell me that because I have six years sober, I need to start wearing skirts and heels. And because I have seven years sober, I shouldn't use the word fuck in my shares. And because I have eight years sober, I should look and sound a certain way. I shouldn't be a waitress. I should be working for an insurance company. And it got really, really suffocating for me. And so at some point, a series of events, not good ones, um, you know, I had to peace out from my home group at eight years and I was freaked out. I'm like, who am I? What is this? Uh, who, who I'm having this identity crisis of like everything I thought I knew, everything that I thought I was supposed to be. I now can see with these clear, open eyes that none of that is real. Who is God's kid? Who is Anya? I'm not being authentic and true to myself when I'm trying to be what you want me to be. And luckily I found a sponsor who believed in me, who asked me what my heart said, who asked me to learn, who, who taught me to learn how to trust my gut. You know, who, who was gentle enough with me. Well, I called her the velvet hammer. It was really cute. So Abby had this way of talking to me where, you know, I would call her with my stuff and she would say, things like, oh, and this cute, and she's like five feet tall. She's amazing. She'd say, oh, well, it sounds like you're self-obsessed. So what you should do is go help someone and not tell anyone about it. <laughs> she put her foot right in my ass in the softest, most gentlest way. And I heard that and I respected it and I followed it, you know, and I started working these steps. And let me tell you something. It was like, I got to build and I keep learning about God. And, and, you know, it's like, they talk about, this is a practice. I don't have to reach a certain goal. Healing is not this linear thing where it's like, I'm going in this upward trajectory. I fall short. I take loops. I fall flat on my ass. Then I'm having like this great, amazing life and all the things are happening. And then all of a sudden it can come crashing down regardless of working a strong program, regardless of having however many sponsees and you know and being in touch with my life is life and I am maladjusted but because of the steps it starts to gel together and I'll tell you the miracle that happened for me in the fourth step which I wasn't searching for I just wanted to stop being so mad um that hurt from a five-year-old girl that blame that my family kept that secret and and didn't protect me but protected him 
I wrote out that fourth and fifth step and I realized, thank God that my babushka never had to know what her only grandson did to her favorite granddaughter. I found a piece that 25 years of therapy couldn't heal. I found an appreciation that it became a secret and that they protected her and for the resilience that I was able to have because I could get vulnerable with a sponsor. I could get honest with myself and I could get honest with another person. This honesty thing, it's funny because it takes time to build, but I did these little tests, right? I would tell a sponsor some really shitty thing that I did and I would wait for it and I'd wait for her to abandon me and I'd wait for her to tell me I'm this horrible person and she never left my side. As a matter of fact, nine times out of 10, she had told me her experience of doing the same thing and the result and the solution to it. No one in this program has ever, you know, well, I've been abandoned, but it doesn't like, you know, Natalie, I'm looking at Natalie. Right? There's, there's been things that have happened, but the ones who have remained and the ones who are the most important, no woman has ever, ever let me down. I've learned a lot of hard lessons. I've had a lot of heartbreak but I've also had incredible inspiration. And oftentimes from people with a lot less time than I have. I remember a guy when I had a couple of years sober, he said something that was so profound and he had like, you know, like six months or something. And he was in this, you know, men's sobriety house or whatever. And he stood up at the podium and he said, this program isn't for people who want it. This is for people who do it. And therein was the difference. I had wanted to get sober and stop being a bag hoe, junkie, alcoholic piece of shit for a very long time. I had been in and out of these rooms for over 17 years, but the only thing I never tried was working as a program as guided by a sponsor. And I remember I used to come into the meetings and I'd say, oh, I'm a chronic relapser. You know, I'm like, I'm a chronic. I can't stay sober, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is I realized at three years sober, I'd never actually tried. So apparently I'm not a chronic relapser. Apparently the first time that I put full force into the 12 steps as guided by a sponsor, nothing. And I'm telling you, nothing has taken me out. And I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about something I'm going through that has happened this last two weeks. I should be drunk. I should not be here. But the reality is, is if you, for all of you new people, if you find a woman or man to walk this journey with you and you trust them with your hurts and your bruises, that they are going to guide you and, and, and help you walk into the direction towards God, nothing will take you out. I was not the uh, poster child for safe sex ever. So, you know, we know what that means. And uh, I've never, you know, I hadn't been pregnant, you know, figured God's doing me a solid because I should not have a young me walking around because that would be a nightmare. And um, about two and a half weeks ago, I found out that I was pregnant. And right after I went and I got that ultrasound and I'm looking at my guy and he's looking at me and, you know, and, and I'm in this loving, gentle, sweet healthy relationship, which is a lot of fun and just easy and not all the abusive relationships that I have been in sober. Um, we're like, fuck, we can't, we can't do this. Like, we don't want to be parents. This is not fitting into our, our life. This is not fitting into anything. This is terrible. And it becomes like this terrible thing. 
And within 24 hours, that baby chooses to leave us. And I have never, ever felt so much pain physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's the first time I was ever angry, so angry at God, so angry. Why would you put this? Why would you put this in our path? Why would you do this? And I'm confused because of the grief. It's like, here I was, I'm thinking, I don't want this child. And then the child leaves and I'm like, oh my God, the soul knew, you know, and all of this stuff, all of this grief and anger that I've had to go through these last two weeks. And I stayed sober through it. I leaned into you. I cried and I screamed and I had Natalie and other women by my side when I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't make it one more day. I had my sponsor force me on a really like a really long walk. It was way too long of a walk, you know, to like get me right to let me say I'm angry. I don't understand God's plan and I'm mad about it. I got to walk through this grief with one of the kindest, most gentlest people that I've ever known, David, who, who is like, he hasn't had the calamity. He is the alcoholic. It's a beautiful story because he doesn't come from abuse. He doesn't come from this traumatic childhood, which tells us you don't have to be a childhood trauma survivor. That's not why I became an alcoholic. I was born this way. That's the power of stories like that is that he had a really sweet, wonderful child that hasn't experienced death and, you know, and all of the other stuff. And nonetheless, he burned his life to the ground. And we had to walk through this. And you know, what's funny. My sponsor said something to me and I kind of got it. She said to me, you know, it's, it's really important that couples know how to have fun together, but it's also really important that you know how to go through grief together. And somewhere in the last I'd say less than 24 hours, I had this funny thought pop in my head. It was just like when my counselor told me when I found out I had hep C and was so upset and bothered by it, uh, you know, that someday I'll be able to help someone else stay sober and finding out that they have this going on and it won't cause them to get loaded. And I was in the shower a little while ago and I thought, what if? God, if that is part of my journey, and this is why I had to go through all of this pain, because someday a woman will walk in my life and she will have the same trauma happen and I can guide her through it to help her stay sober through it, then I'll fucking take it. I'll take it. And that's what happens around here. I've never had to walk alone. And I do want to tell a quick story about uh, that cop story that showed me some kindness. I'm about four years sober. I'm the secretary of a meeting. And I thought that was, you know, hot shit at the time. And me and this guy, Boo Boo, who I adore. Um, but we've had our ups and downs for sure. We're these co-secretaries. We're going to find the dopest speakers because this meeting was going into the toilet. And so we're going to like gallivant all of the round and we're going to get the big ones. We're going to get the patios and we're going to get all of like the Clancy's and we're going to get the, you know, the big time AAs. And so I go to this meeting. I'm half listening, but I hear this guy. It's this huge meeting in Bellflower. I don't like big meetings. People are, it's hard for me. Uh, I don't know if I have social anxiety. I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm the conundrum. I'm like the introverted extrovert. Um, but 
I go to this meeting, this guy's sharing from the podium and he's talking about how he was from Venice and he was this thug and gangster and shot dope and all that stuff. And I was like, that's my guy, right? And so at the end of the meeting, I wait in this 200 person line. And at the very end, I was like, hey, can I have your name? I'd like to know if you'd speak at this Saturday night meeting um, up on the hill. He gives me his name. <clears throat> I book him for four months later. We're sitting in this meeting and I look at him and I knew that he had been, you know, he had fought in the, in the uh, Gulf War and, you know, he was a police officer, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and so I look into his eyes and I said, your eyes are really familiar. I said, have you ever arrested me before? I said, there's this one cop, I'll never forget him. And I've always wanted to thank him. Uh, you know, he has your same eyes, but you're a lot smaller. He was like this big yoked guy, but he had this Harley Davidson tattoo on his arm. And that man rolls up his sleeve and he shows me that Harley Davidson tattoo. And he had 29 years at the time of sobriety. And I got to look at Charlie Kay and I got to thank him for giving me the only dignity that a low life piece of shit, homeless wreck had ever experienced from someone in power. And that is what we get to have in here. We talk about doing 180s and our lives turning around and it ain't no joke, but it takes work. It takes courage. It takes balls. And we've all got them. We've all got them. We just got to get over ourselves a little bit, you know, and be willing, as I say, to touch the bruises. And here I am, I'm 10 years sober and I'm turning, I'll be 11 in a little bit. And I have never felt newer in my whole life. I'm like this raw vein. I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to hurt all over again. I am willing to take all of it because a new evolution is about to happen. And I don't know where it's going to lead me, but I know that it's not going to be behind a dumpster with a needle in my arm and a beer in a bag. So thank you guys for having me tonight. And um, I love you and thank you for my life.